Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. When you have insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. How do you know you're not overpaying? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a technology company that securely connects with your insurance and reviews your claims for overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Donald Trump has lost his federal appeal on immunity in the E. Jean Carroll case. We have such a great show for you today. Former Senator Barbara Boxer stops by to tell us her big idea on how we can fix immigration in America. Then we'll talk to Nixonland author Rick Perlstein about how hard it is to cover American politics right now. But first, we have the host of the Mary Trump Show, the one, the only Mary Trump. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Mary Trump. Thank you, Molly Jugfest. <laughs> <laughs> you and I. <laughs> you know, it's funny because when we were talking a minute ago, I was thinking about like all of the many things that Trump tried during his administration that didn't work. From the Muslim ban to the fact that he was going to create his own Twitter to his, remember when he was going to create like a multimedia empire? Do you remember that? I do indeed. <laughs> <laughs> it just strikes me that the only thing Trump has been able to really do well is intimidate Republican politicians. And uh, many in the corporate media as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although I think that's more about money than intimidation. But yes, there is not one Republican politician I'm aware of, or we're, you know, we're going to need a, a bigger microscope <laughs> that has any spine left because they're either intimidated by him or they're 100% in lockstep with him or like somebody like Elise Stefanik, 
they are just the most grasping opportunists to believe that their power in the future lies with sticking with him. On Saturday, Elise Stefanik gave an interview to Kristen Walker on Meet the Press where she said that she didn't think of the January 6th criminals, the people in jail for crimes, right? Those people, she thought of them as hostages. It was important, I think, because Trump had that weekend in Iowa shopped this way of interpreting normal reality, right? That they were not criminals. They were hostages. And then Stefanik said the same. I see this helps the schism between the Republican base and reality grow, but I'm curious what your take is. Well, one of the things that was shocking about that statement is it was not the worst thing she said in this (laughs) horrific, we can't even call it an interview. What was the worst thing she said? That she is willing not to certify the results of the 2024 election. That's the next link in the chain that they're forging. Well, as for the hostages thing, we've heard people like Marjorie Green and Tucker Carlson use similar language in the past, again, because it doesn't get pushback and you don't have Republicans saying word to the contrary. It becomes a viable talking point. And I think one of the things that's begun happening since we're in election season and clearly Donald's going to be the nominee is that he sends up a trial balloon and he doesn't just double down on it. All of his surrogates begin to as well. So Stefanik's thinks her job, well, her job is to sort of spread the word and do a version of what Donald does is just to get people inured to these vicious lies and change people's perception of reality, of what's right and what's wrong. And if you have a corporate media who's willing to just roll over and and let it slide, then we're in serious trouble because we already know that significant numbers of Republicans think that January 6th was Antifa or BLM or the FBI. It's like, okay, if you think that January 6th insurrectionists who've been either been convicted or have pled guilty, by the way, you know, the vast majority of them pled guilty. Like two people were found not not guilty and the vast majority pled guilty themselves. So if you believe they're hostages, then you think that it was perfectly okay for them to destroy the lives of the Capitol police officers who were trying to defend the Capitol. This is your uncle, right, who is oh. who has created this alternative reality, right? This Earth 2 situation. Your uncle, right? I mean, obviously you have no responsibility here, but I mean, just he, I mean, you need not be said. But the thing I always wonder about the Donald Trump origin story, which of which you are too familiar, is did this happen like when you knew him? I mean, did the man just happens into a perfect storm of Republican sycophancy or was he in some ways an evil genius? Oh, no, there's nothing genius about him. I know you mean that in an idiot savant kind of way, but even so, yes, he has his he has his skills. And I still find they're shocking. He's capable of finding people who are weaker than he is to do his bidding. And he does have his finger on the pulse of what motivates what negative things motivate people. You know, the hatred, the division, because he knows he can't win on a level playing field. So he needs those things. It's all in service to him. Right. But think of it this way. 
if he had no support, if he had no enablers, if the media weren't uh, in his corner, if the entire structure of the United States government were woefully in the tank for the vicious minority, right? Donald wouldn't be able to get a job at a car wash. No disrespect to people (laughs) who work in car washes, because that's actually harder work than he's ever done in his life, right? The tragedy here is that at every step along the way, there have been enough people with enough power and enough money to keep this myth going. There are legitimate businessmen out there who've been wildly successful. Obviously, nobody can become a billionaire without government assistance and getting right. all sorts of breaks. But there are people out there who, you know, would be, if not as successful, still very, very successful, even without the perk and the help. He is not right, one right. of those people. <laughs> it's funny because i think so much about this idea of why we're struggling so hard in the mainstream media to cover trump trumpism the rise to authoritarianism and one of the things we suffer with when it comes to the mainstream media and it's particularly true in print journalism it's really hard is this framing that for years and years hundreds of years we've used to great success which is party a says this party b says yeah. this but the problem is when party b says it's raining pink cotton candy you can't repeat what party b says because it's a lie and that is fundamentally where we are right now Absolutely. And you could say the same thing about the Democratic Party. They continue to function within a paradigm that no longer exists. And I see that shifting a little bit. Uh, I think Joe Biden's recent speeches have been more direct. He's more willing to call Donald names, which I know that sounds absurd, but that's important. It's important that he call him a loser and things like that. The corporate media are woefully not prepared for this moment. For that very reason, they think fairness means listening to both sides without commentary, (laughs) you know, that allowing both sides to present their case without pushback. And as you said, that means that one side gets to amplify its lies to a degree that overtakes facts and truth. It is a real like fundamental problem of bad faith actors. It's funny because it's like with Trump, I come from the same town as him, right? Not Long Island, but but Manhattan. I lived in the city. Queens is Queens, right. New York City. I mean, but not Manhattan. Totally not Manhattan. We we called Manhattan the city, even though Queens is <laughs> You know, <laughs> but yeah, I grew up in that same, you know, 1980s New York. The thing that crafted Donald Trump was in some ways the thing that crafted me, though I was much younger, thank God. But I think a lot about this idea of like the kind of behavior, the kind of like, I want to say like nihilistic sort of killer instinct, you know, the way that people in New York steal each other's cabs, right? There is not a supposition of good faith. When Trump came along to Washington, what little sort of good faith there was in Washington, he really was able to get rid of it. Yes, he was. That's training. That was my family. There is no good faith. There's no assumption that because your family, you're going to be treated well, or because your family you deserve to share in what everybody else shares in if you're the wrong kind of person. 
think about words like kind, sensitive, generous, funny, sweet, what words like that, that if you have a child, do you want your child to be surrounded by people who could be described with those words? In my family, that means you're a fucking loser and you don't deserve to breathe air. <laughs> you know, you just are not. <laughs> there is no place for you on this planet. If you were a kind, generous, sensitive soul, you know, you may as well just fuck right off, basically. <laughs> this is the mentality. And, we, you know, what's amazing about this is that Donald had to develop this veneer of toughness, this veneer of being a, a, you know, a killer, which is what my grandfather required. But as we've seen over the last seven years when he's been on the national stage in politics, that's really just window dressing because he is the weakest, whiniest, most aggrieved person on the planet who only just goes on and on about how he's he's been treated badly you know? right, right. so that yeah, doesn't yeah. seem like strength to me and yet it's enabled him to push against not just push against but the, again the, we're talking about donald's few skills one of them is pushing the envelope to see how much he can get away with getting away with it and then pushing the envelope some more right so yeah he doesn't just go in and break something he tests it he he tests the you know he puts stress on the joint and right. if they don't break, they bend, uh, then he stresses the more. And we've seen that right now in American politics, there is no such thing as tradition. There are no such things as norms. There are no such. Th and, and now he's trying to do the same thing with our actual rule of law because he's gotten so far with so much help. It's such a weird thing to think that, like, the dumbest member of your family, that's a question. <laughs> Could destroy American democracy because the other people were scared of his mean tweets. <laughs> Not to put too fine a point on it. You know, I, it's a perfectly fine, fine point. So first of all, Donald is not the dumbest person in my family. <laughs> and, I'm sorry. Well, I, you know, it's it's we have so much to choose from. I mean, if we include past members of my family, <laughs> including to those oh, current members, he's also not the worst person ever in my family, which is really, really <laughs> saying something. <laughs> he's the worst because of the power that he's been handed, right? It just shows you how... Um, if you if you convince somebody, and it's in a weird way, like we see the same thing with white privilege. If you convince somebody that their need for power is based on their needing to cheat, lie, or steal, and you convince them that that power is the only thing that is going to make them relevant as people, then you can manipulate them. Because there's no other explanation for this current Republican Party. Clearly... Power has become an end in itself. They don't care about anything else. And, you know, possibly because they see the alternative. And I'm sure that, you know, Donald spent his, most of his life feeling this way. The alternative is annihilation. Right. The alternative is annihilation. But the problem is that winning is also annihilation. Well, for us. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right. They're winning. For yes, American democracy. I mean, for us. 
Right. It's hilarious because it's terrifying. You know, we didn't know each other before the first before 2015. We didn't know each other before 2020. Yeah. Really? Yeah. My book came out in uh, July 2020, and I'm pretty sure. Do you miss that? I think of you as very much not a person who would be doing this if it weren't absolutely necessary. It's almost impossible to imagine, quite honestly. To tell you the truth, 2016 to 2020 were pretty freaking horrible. And I think given the circumstances, it's better to be able to have a voice and have community than just suffer silently, which is what I was doing for the first four years because it was so devastating and isolating in a particular way. So what I miss is the before times and not the before COVID times, the before November 2016 times. Right. When things were just so much lower stakes. Yeah. One of the many reasons why I really like you so much and and respect you so much is because I know how uncomfortable this is for you. And, and I know that you are really so committed to the cause of trying to keep American democracy going, which is so, by the way, to have one, only one party believe in it is how we got here, right? To have one party completely willing to throw everything away, cynically. You know, if they were doing it for ideological reasons, it would still be terrible. But to know that, that almost to a person, they have literally no convictions that's somehow worse because I think it makes the project of rebuilding that much harder. I hope I'm wrong about that. It makes it almost impossible to trust in their ability to have integrity in the future. You know, like, so what do we do? You know, who are, who are we going to be dealing with, assuming there is a post-2024? Mary Trump, you are the greatest. I hope you'll come back. When you have health insurance, it's easy to think, I'm covered, no worries, right? Well, not so fast. What about your out-of-pocket costs? That can be a lot of money for you and your family. And if you're like me, you can't help but wonder, was I overbilled? You're not alone. It's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. Unless you're a billing expert, how do you know your medical bills are accurate? That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. What is HealthLock? It's a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance. When your medical claims come in, HealthLock technology reviews the claims for errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. HealthLock makes it easy to find and fix hidden errors, so you pay only what you owe. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. Bottom line, insurance alone isn't enough. HealthLock finds medical bill errors before you pay. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. 
So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Rain or shine, every day is a great day for fishing, right? You got rain gear, but you can't overlook sunny day gear. A Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie has you covered on the sunniest days. Like literally. I mean, who wouldn't trade a sunburn for a trophy fish? But why do it if you don't have to? Especially when this Solar Stream Elite hoodie is built with broad spectrum UV protection. We're talking UPF 50. And it has airflow so you don't overheat. And what's the alternative? Putting down the rod every half hour so you can slather on some sunscreen. Seems like an easy choice to me. Columbia PFG has you covered with their Castback TC shoe. Its OmniMax cushioning and traction system helps if you're on your feet a lot, say, fighting a fish. Not to mention keeping you sure-footed on a wet, rocking boat. So if you're going to be spending long days out on the water, and I sincerely hope that you will be, head over to Columbia.com PFG and shop all their performance fishing gear. Barbara Boxer is a former senator from the great state of California. Welcome to Fast Politics. Former senator. I'm going to call you former senator, Barbara (laughs) Boxer. Hi. (laughs) I'm so glad to have you. And, you know, one of the things I'm struck by in the pundit industrial complex of which I am a member is that it feels like we forget very recent history all the time. Yeah, it's because it's 24-7. It's of the moment. And there's something very exciting about that. But you also lose something in terms of the depth of looking at what happened before. So one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on this podcast is that you know a lot of stuff. You and I met each other over the Christmas break and we were talking about immigration. You were a senator from California for a long time in Congress before that. And Republicans are at least pretending that they want a solution to the immigration. I don't even want to call it a crisis because where we are right now, we have a population that's declining and I think a labor force that needs people, but it has been painted as a crisis. You know, you can give it whatever name you want. And some days it feels like a crisis and some days it feels like it's okay. But the situation is this, you talk about of the moment and looking back. After we had our little lovely meeting and I enjoyed it so much, Molly. I don't know. I I guess I was tweeting about immigration and somebody posted, listen to this, a press conference from 1993 where I was at the border with Senator Feinstein, my colleague. Oh, wow. And Janet Reno, the attorney general, because we had, quote, a crisis at the border. We have always had issues at the border. And the last comprehensive immigration reform that we had was when Ronald Reagan was president. And I sort of hate to admit it, but I was there. I was in the house at that time. (laughs) In 1986, can you imagine? 
And yeah, bottom line, we passed it. And what was it? And why did it work? Because as we took what Democrats wanted and what Republicans wanted, we married them up and we got a path of citizenship for those who've been here for a long time with clean records. And we also secured the border. That was 1986. We know how to do this thing. And where we're at now is not uh, too complicated to see. Republicans don't want a solution. They want the issue. The issue is potent. You show people walking in. You had DeSantis say yesterday, oh, if you go ahead and remove Trump from the ballot because he's an insurrectionist, he says, I'm going to say Biden's an insurrectionist because there's an invasion at the border. And he was so excited to say that. So this is where it's at. And, you know, when people say it's too complicated, I always get upset because we can solve this problem. We need to surge our resources to the border. Everyone has a right to a hearing if they meet certain provisions of our law, which says they have to be fearful for their lives. They have a right to have a hearing if that's the case. So if you move the resources to the border, which takes some money, Biden's it, you can have the National Guard and do some of the administrative work and get more folks out there. You can have the judges out there. This can be fixed. Period. I want to pause and like rewind a little bit. The way we got here is there is right now almost no path to citizenship in this country. Well, there is a path to citizenship. It takes a long time. But yes, there's a definite path and there's certain numbers of people who can qualify every year. It's a certain number. It changes every year. I don't know the exact number. And that's all fine. And that's all working. But it's very small. It's problematic, right? It, it isn't producing the number of workers that you would need in order for the economy to grow. That's the truth. We do need more workers. And that's a big plus of having immigration that works. So as you know, a lot of our mayors in the big cities have said to the president, what will really help the cities who are taking the brunt of the illegal immigration right now, because we don't have those resources at the border and people, they just get a stamp and they can go stay with their relatives. So they're all over the country, but they can't work most of them. So right, because- that takes executive action. And so Biden has done that for, I believe, the Venezuelans. But yes, I mean, look, here in California, we always have a lack of agricultural workers. That's for sure. So look, Molly, we have a broken immigration system. We need the workers. We know that we have to control the border, but we need a better way to allow the immigration system to function that makes sense. The people who are in fear for their lives have a total right to a hearing to make their case. If they're just coming here because they can't get economic opportunity in their country, that's not allowed under the law. Because the idea here is that asylum seekers are coming because they're in danger. So your idea is to move these courts to the border. Explain to us exactly how you envision this happening. Yes, it's just like you move resources to where they're needed. For example, if God forbid there's an earthquake, and Lord knows we've gone through that. FEMA sets up temporary living places for people while they get their homes fixed. We've done these things where we can shift resources to where they are needed. Natural disasters is one example. This is a situation that I believe needs this kind of change. And it just takes 
some supplemental funding to do it. And again, use of the National Guard to to erect these new buildings in these places, it's, it's going to make total difference because you'll be able to respond to people. Right now, it's taking literally years for people to get an answer. Well, that's sort of a crazy system, but they're here a few years and then they find out they need to go back. I mean, that's crazy. So the idea was immediately you would have a judge there. He would listen to the cases, he or she, you know, you'd have people come over the border, they'd whatever change, get sort of medical help, and then they'd get lawyers, they would talk to the court immediately, and you wouldn't get an answer within 24 hours. Maybe it would be a little longer, Molly, because we do (laughs) have the ability right now to take care of people for, you know, a month, but you would move it up. They would not have to leave. They would get their answer and move on. And then your point that we really do have a shortage of workers, there ought to be a worker program, which we've had in the past and we had under the Ronald Reagan compromise. There were workers that were able to, uh, if they didn't meet the refugee requirement of imminent danger, they could work here and have a worker's permit. And if they were good and they worked and they they played by the rules, eventually they became citizens. So these are the things that we can do. But this begs the most important question of all. Do the Republicans really want to solve this? And I could tell you, being in politics so very long, you know, it was 10 years in the House, 24 years in the Senate, six years before that in local government. I know when a party wants an issue and doesn't want a resolution. It happens a lot. I've seen it on both sides from time to time. But this thing is just awful because it is, you know, a lot of lives are at stake here and a lot of, you know, well-being of children and families are at stake and we need to fix it. And it isn't that complicated to do it. It's just the will. And right now the president's been asking for supplemental funding to surge some of these resources to the border. And, and of course, there's uh, nothing coming from the other side. They're saying, well, we don't think it's about money. Really, do they ever have to send their kids to college and get them housing? Everything has a price. But if we can set this up in the right way and we marry it up with worker programs, we're going to be the better for it. I saw many, many studies that came out of USC, how important immigration is to my state and how what a benefit it is. Billions of dollars a year of benefit because you get the workers. And if you look at the entrepreneurs, the entrepreneurs, right. they're huge numbers, 25, 30% of them are immigrants and, and they've become super successful. So this is a If I can say it's a made-up crisis in this sense, it doesn't have to be a crisis. They know it. The question is, do the American people know it? At this point, I don't know. And their whole thing, look, one of them said, one of their members of Congress, a gentleman, I don't remember his name, said out loud, I don't want to do anything because I don't want it to help Joe Biden. Right, right, right. I remember that. These MAGA people, the thing about them is they just blurt it out like their great orange leader. Oh, I'm going to be a dictator, but on day one and only day one. Well, if you declare martial law on day one, democracy is over. They say they say it out loud. 
one of the things that I'm struck by is just how much immigration really feels like the only thing Republicans have to run on right now, right? Because the economy is getting much better. They know abortion. I mean, a lot of their ideas have gotten so right wing. I mean, it's funny because it's like you were in the Senate at the time and in the House during Ronald Reagan. But Republicans seem like they've really moved to the right on a lot of things. Well, that, my friend Molly, is the biggest understatement I've heard (laughs) all day. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) move to the right. They're off the cliff. They have fallen off the cliff. You know how people say, and Biden has said, you know, this is not my grandpa's Republican Party. I remember, you know, I always hate when old people say, I remember. But I remember when my dad was for Eisenhower and my mother was for Stevenson and my father went around with his I like Ike button. I said, Daddy, tell me about, well, he's a hero. And he said, we spend too much on the military and we need to invest in education. That was Dwight Eisenhower. And again, here's Ronald Reagan doing this amnesty bill. That's what it was called. And that's what it was. If you were in this country, you got amnesty, you got a clean record. Yeah. There is no relationship to this MAGA crowd. And my hope is that the reasonable Republicans, and we see a lot of them in your field of work, in the media. We see a lot of them (laughs) retiring from the House as quickly as possible. They're retired, but we also see very young people, from my perspective, you know, in their 30s, in their 40s, on television, who used to be Republicans and say, I can't do this anymore. And to say that the party of hate, I mean, they that's what they spew. It's all right. about division. It's very frightening because it's the politics of grievance. And everybody's got a grievance, you know? Right. Everybody. So all of a sudden you go, you're unhappy about this. Here's who to blame. Blame those people over there who don't look like you, who don't love who you love. So they'll keep that up. So I think they have more than immigration. That's a big one. But they also have, you know, the culture wars that they will continue to perform. Yeah. I mean, they'll try whatever they can. Oh, yeah. What I think is interesting about your border solution is that there are problems in government that we can solve by looking at things in a slightly different way. You know, like the idea of setting up immigration courts on the border is something we just haven't done, right? Part of the problem with immigration right now is that you have these people that they're not being given work visas, so they can't work. So they are then forced to be poor. It's a self-referring problem, right? It's it's a problem that's created. You've got it right. And these things can be curable if you have the resources where they go. And again, repeat, we see that whenever there's a natural disaster, FEMA is great at that. They bring their offices right right to the people. Even after, you know, Zooms and all of that, they bring their offices right to the people. They have housing that's temporary. Um, They did it in Louisiana. They do. So it's not like this is a foreign idea. And if we marry up what you're saying, which is we need workers with we need quicker decisions on asylum. Now you have a system. And also you have people that need to go back who don't meet any of that. And that's just sad, but that's just true. You know, you don't take every single person in. You can't. That's just the fact. They have to wait in line if they don't qualify. Just between you and I and the listeners of this podcast, I think we should take everyone because I think our country has room for it. And I think that ultimately our country was built on this idea that we are that. 
I don't agree with that. I think you need numbers that are fair and just um, because you just, if you went that way, it couldn't be handled. It just could not be handled. Think about what's coming, climate change and everything else. So I think that's one place we don't agree. I think you need a system so that the people who need to get out of their countries because of fear of retaliation and harm to their families, they should have a pathway in. People who can work should have a pathway in. And the others should just sign up because we do have a system that does allow, you know, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people and legally every year. I think that works. Yeah. If you had a solution where you had a real pathway, it's deflationary, if nothing else. If you have a system that is true to the law, which says people who have a legitimate fear of danger by going back to their country and they get their day quickly in front of a court, that's a blessing. And they don't have to wait for years and then be told they don't meet the requirements they have to leave. That's just wrong. And that's the cause of a lot of the problems. So you need to have places for people to stay that work out. We, we have good places at the border, but not enough spaces at the borders. We need more of that. And then a quick system so they can be heard and their future is determined. If you marry that up with a really good work system, which employers who are usually the constituents that the Republicans like to please, that would be very good to our business community to have a field of workers who could just go out there and they have a special visa, a work visa, and if they have good records, they get to stay. And then the other people have to wait their turn. And the numbers that come in every year, if they're too low, they can always be adjusted. But I think you do have to have control over the border. Barbara Boxer, Senator, thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Molly. And, you know, keep on keeping on. You're a very refreshing voice. Rick Perlstein is the author of Invisible Bridge and Reagan Land. Welcome to Fast Politics, Rick. Oh, it's great to be here. So I kind of want to talk about Nixon land, how we got here. You know, you are a historian. I feel like one of the things I can do with this podcast is talk to people who know history and explain to them a little bit about the precedent. You know, we are the United States of amnesia, but we don't have to be, right? Yes, yes. That's a great framing. I kind of fell into this work in the middle of the 1990s. I was kind of looking for a subject to pursue as a writer. I'd been an editor and magazine, kind of intellectual magazine writer in New York. And I was obsessed with the 60s, fascinated by the 60s. And, you know, the fact that social change just seemed to happen like every day, you know, just like some revolution every week, you know. And I grew up just being absolutely riveted by that, those stories. And then I kind of realized that, isn't it interesting that the hegemonic narrative about what the 60s was, was, you know, I called it the minivan commercial version of the 60s, where, you know, we were all marching out in the streets and I burned my bra and da 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 Now, it's, you know, great and important, but no one had really thought about the fact that the right kind of won the 60s. <laughs> I mean, Nixon win election and then landslide re-election by running against the 60s. You know, Reagan becomes governor of California, kind of running against the 60s, and then wins, becomes president, kind of running against the 60s. So studying the right was just kind of an accident. It kind of started right after Newt Gingrich took over Congress. And I had kind of been very academically minded, really into critical theory. And I'm like, wow, I need to really understand my fellow Americans. 
So that's how I kind of became sort of an anthropologist of the non-liberal tribes. Running against the 60s, winning against the 60s. Do you think that that's why Republicans were so obsessed with this idea of Black Lives Matter and Antifa, like that they tried so hard to blow it up because they knew enough history to suspect that they could use those to win in a way that Nixon had? Or Yeah, I mean, among, you know, the further right, precincts that say the quiet part out loud, the, you know, Bronze Age pervert types, you know, they'll explicitly say, wow, if we can really stir up some real riots during this kind of Black Lives Matter protest, then we can, can get our Caesar, right? Pulling back the frame even bigger. I mean, the, the kind of flow, the kind of river-like flow of progress and reaction that, you know, goes back to the attempt to form, you know, a nation in which all men and are created equal that was also scarred by genocide and slavery. You know, it's kind of the big history. And the even, you know, kind of bigger frame for it is, you know, I say this in my article, I think that brought me to your attention today. We're never less than halfway to civil war in this country in a lot of ways. By the same token, the elites often don't want to stare down into that abyss. And one of the patterns I keep on recognizing ever since studying how kind of the most influential journalists and pundits write about politics ever since the 50s is they're always kind of domesticating the scary stuff, you know, and they're always trying to kind of remind us that, oh, well, deep down, America is a moderate centrist country. You know, everything that's really scary is somehow kind of this exception. And, you know, the exceptions just keep on piling up and piling up and piling up. And so wake up in 2021 and the exceptions have become fascism, right? That's like the big story I've been telling. And it's a really hard story because all of our institutions of journalism, you know, all the tools that journalists use, all the structures, all the mental models, all the habits are all based on this idea that we have these kind of, you know, kind of these sensible civil elections every four years. And the person who manages to persuade the most people gets to be president and the other guys go home and they try it again another four years. Well, that doesn't really work when you have less than half the country, of course. Let's do away with the fiction that these people ever come close to winning 50 percent of the vote. You have half the country that's basically decided that they have this almost, well, let's call it divide to rule. And that there are plenty of people who think that it's going to take violence in order to restore this divine right against people who they don't really consider American at all. And the word for this is fascism. And the Republicans have become quite transparently fascist. I mean, when you have someone like Elise Stefanik, who's, you know, someone who puts her finger in the air and follows the main chance and literally saying, well, these hundreds of people who are convicted, they're hostages, convicted in courts of law for rioting on January 6th from, you know, venal sins to quite mortal ones, you know, like chasing around the Capitol looking for people to murder, they're hostages, right? Which is your way of saying, the entire legal system in the United States, the entire criminal justice system is illegitimate in the face of the true power of the country, which is this kind of will. I agree. I have two questions here. One is this is a growing schism, right, between what is true and what the base is told is true, right? Number one. And number two, I just wonder how much of this is this idea of white privilege, right? That one of the things I've been struck by since Trump lost 
right, in 2020 is at every point, people in the Republican Party and even like mainstream media, people have said, well, just leave him. He's not going to do anything. Like, just let him blow off some steam. Remember that Republican who said he's not overthrowing the election. He's just playing golf, right? You know, that at every point people said, well, just let him be. He'll be fine. Oh, this Frederick history really starts getting scary because the people who have been best at kind of really showing us clearly what's happening in America are not American historians, they're European historians. And you know, it's a Tim Snyder's of the world. It's one of my favorite young writers, John Gans, who I interviewed for my column. What has happened in Europe between World War One and World War Two, or in, you know, kind of South America in the 70s, helps us understand America in a way that we're not used to thinking about America. And, you know, one of the things that happened, both in the case of the successful fascist takeovers in Italy with Mussolini and Hitler in Germany, is that the kind of conservative elite said, don't worry about Hitler. He's not going to, you know, street thugs are not going to take over the country and start murdering people. You know, let him blow off steam. You know, he's a frustrated painter. We'll be able to control him. And the exactly the same, much more explicitly with the kind of cons- mainstream opposition to fascism in the parliament. They would say, we'll make, you know, this is this is the crazy parallel. If Mussolini's party gets representation in parliament, you know, then he'll become serious, right? Remember the joke we used to say that the media would always say this is the day Trump became president because he got halfway read the teleprompter straight, right? So that is, that's a very, very strong pattern in uh, how authoritarian governments happen because the people who should be the bulwarks, the guardrails, you know, out of fear, out of intimidation, out of maybe a little bit of seduction by the fascist mentality themselves. Let it go. Part of it, though, is that they're covering unprecedented times. And again, I'm not giving anyone to cover here. I wish more people recognized that and made the effort. Right. Right. So what do you think, though, about this idea that they can't meet the moment, that mainstream media does not have the kind of, and especially right now, that doesn't have what it needs? Mainstream journalists who are saying, holy cow, the 2024 election isn't just about votes. It's, it's about how many guns one side might have. Right. How do you even wrap your mind around that? And how do you how do you go to the Iowa caucuses? You know, and that's a really hard question. And, you know, I have this weekly column in the American Prospect called the Infernal Triangle. And one of the things I've started doing is just interviewing really smart people and asking them that question. You know, I interviewed Jeff Charlotte, you know, the the, the guy chased around Wisconsin for, for two years. And he's like, I don't want to say that this is fascism. But then he's like, when I meet a guy who has tattoos, you know, that talk about how much he likes shooting people, you know, and decides that, you know, Trump is the manifestation of the Godhead and that, you know, brown people are taking over the country. I have no other choice. Right. So how do you do that? And I'm not going to say it's easy and I'm not even going to like, you know, necessarily bash, you know, mainstream journalists, although I'll do a lot of that. Two, here's what I would say. Basically, we have to open ourselves up because there have always been amazing, you know, alternative journalists who don't act this way and they have to be kind of elevated, right? It's like during the Iraq war, right? It's like the post would say, Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction. We must take them out. The same day that someone in, you know, like Mother Jones or The Nation or some blog, here's proof that he doesn't have weapons of mass destruction. And so, you know, we really have to open ourselves up to alternate sources of authority. And, you know, I would just, you know, implore on the behalf of kind of the mainstream journalists who, you know, basically have to follow the rules of their profession in order to, you know, 
keep a job, you know, it's just open themselves up to respect, you know, the people who have different ways of telling these stories. Does that make sense? Yes, for sure. And what but one of the things that I'm struck by is like, you know, I I wrote about this coverage snafu this weekend. Part of the old school framing, right, that we have done as print journalists. I mean, you and I are on the opinion side. That's a huge advantage, right, being on the opinion side. It's kind of this funny thing. You know, it's like there became a certain time during the Trump administration where it was okay to say this thing that Donald Trump is saying is false. The election wasn't stolen. There are a million things they could have done. They could have said, you know, like when they were reporting the Tea Party, you know, in 2009, and, and they said they call themselves T stands for tax enough already. We should note that Barack Obama cut taxes for 97 percent of Americans. Right. I mean, that's still a fact. Right. So there's, there's a lot you can do within the rules of objective journalism. Once they made this advance in The New York Times of being able to use the L word about Donald Trump. Right. The lie word if not the F word, then you can kind of open yourself to saying, wow, the way they lie is systematic. And you can kind of talk about individual instances instead of this poison, this Pravda-like poison that every time you say something bad about the Republicans, you have to say something bad about the Democrats. In 1972, the Washington Post would always balance a story about, you know, some burglar breaking in, getting paid off by the White House with a story about you know, some loan that George McGovern, who was a total Boy Scout, had taken, something like that. Yeah, no, I think that's right. The question I have for you is more about this idea that Republicans are being taken at their word, right? So Biden has has done something which is quite unusual if we were all normal, which we're not because of nine years of Trump. But Biden has, like, he gave this speech where he said, you know, Trump is an autocrat. This is authoritarianism. You know, he was right to do it. And I feel that he truly believed, and I think he does believe, that this could be our last election. I was talking to a ranking Democrat in the House who was saying the same thing to me. And and I believe it, too. I mean, this could be the end, right? You think Trump is going to leave after four years? He barely left last time. I mean, there's very recent history that will show that... There's no way Trump leaves again. But then the responses in this conventional political framing was Biden describes Trump as a danger to democracy. Right. The tragic thing about that is if there really is, you know, a fascist takeover in America, they're not going to say, well, the New York Times, you know, NPR, their political journalists, they played it pretty straight with us. They really kind of gave our side of the story. So we're not going to line them against the wall. We're not going to say that they're part of the, what did, what did he say about the enemies of the people, right? So, I mean, the, the fact of the matter is these news organizations, whether they like it or not, in the broadest sense of the term of, you know, kind of having an enlightenment approach to trying to uncover the truth without fear or favor, wherever the chips may fall, are liberal institutions. <laughs> and they're going to be despised by these people and hated by these people in existential ways, whether they, quote unquote, are fair to them or not. I mean, they're they're poisoning the blood, you know, whatever happens. So, I mean, we know this is, you know, wrong, right? I mean, it's like, you know, I mean, I, I, the little exercise I do is what is this going to look like 50 years from now? If, you know, there if there's an America and there are American historians and they're going to say, oh, are they going to say, oh, well, you know, both sides had this disagreement about what American democracy meant? Or they look beyond the headline and say, wait a sec, there are all these people, you know, there, there are all these millions of Americans who have guns and say that they're to protect themselves from tyrants. Oh, and by the way, the Democratic Party represents tyranny for, you know, upholding the idea that people should get vaccines was when there's an epidemic, right? It doesn't fit. It doesn't signify. 
So, I mean, I don't know what you do with these people, right? But I mean, I think, you know, maybe appealing to their conscience in terms of, you know, will they be at 50 years from now as people who gave a useful and accurate picture of reality uh, that, you know, gave citizens the tools to govern themselves? Or will they be seen as the way we see, you know, the, the people who read Vichy France, you know? Well, if there's a possible saving grace here, it's that, A, the economy is really good, right? In Germany, with Hitler, I mean, people, I mean, again, I'm Jewish, so. They're filling wheelbarrows with. With cash, yeah. The joke was Mussolini made the, the trains run on. It is a very different America than it was Germany in, in the 30s. The severing from reality, from our representation of reality, can be very similar. So the fact of the matter is, we want to have hope as Democrats that, oh, people vote on the economy and they feel like their prospects are getting better. Well, there's, you know, kind of two things about that. First of all, one of the things that's kind of the tragedy of how the media does economic journalism is, you know, there's just pile on pile on pile on pile of headline basically making it seem like the economy will collapse any second because of inflation. Because have to kind of do this both sides journalism. If they're mean to Trump, they have to be, you know, mean to Biden. But the other thing is, ever since Ronald Reagan, and this is, you know, one of these very uncomfortable, long structures of history, people have learned to kind of sever, you know, who they hire when they vote from, you know, what people actually do when they're public officials, right? You're basically hiring like an administrator, like a CEO, hiring people, administering the government, coming up with policies, this kind of technical work. But we're basically, you know, have learned not to really think of uh, at least, you know, the other side of the aisle, the government is something that's real or good or does stuff. So you basically just kind of see people to vote for as, you know, personalities, right? And, you know, basically these days kind of social media stars. I'm going to be writing about this. Chris Hayes, before he was a you know famous TV guy, he was just like this, you know, struggling young journalist in Chicago. And he wrote this amazing piece in The New Republic in 2005 about what it was like canvassing among undecided voters in Wisconsin. And he would say, oh, John Kerry has a plan to help you get health insurance. And he said, he would, they would look at me like I said, John Kerry has a plan to fix your debt, right? There isn't that connection between what politicians do actually when they get the job and why we should vote for them. I think the Democrats have to realize you know, that people see politicians the way they see politicians. You know, they're not going to be made suddenly go back to the 50s where they're like, oh, you know, I got a nice pay envelope last month and they're building a dam, you know, 10 miles away and they're creating a lot of jobs and, you know, it's going to make cheaper electricity. You know, the Republicans have worked to kind of flood the zone with shit, basically, since Ronald Reagan. The idea that government is your enemy and that has had consequences and that's part of the tragedy we're facing right now. And it's very hard and it's going to take more than one election or five elections to really get people back on track to understanding that, you know, democratic public policy that works in the broad interests of material needs of most Americans is something that you should actually hire someone to do. Yeah, it's a good point. Thank you so much, Rick. I hope you'll come back. Anytime. And now your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon, we're back. Molly Junk Fest, I want to say congratulations. While we were gone, we crossed 200 episodes. This is somewhere around 2,000 segments you and I have taped together, that means. Congratulations to us both. And you just celebrated a birthday, so you are now officially older than I am again, thank God. <laughs> Those eight months a year. More importantly than anything. But on to the moment of fuckery. Roger Stone, that tricky little fellow, he tried to get a NYPD officer to murder Eric Swalwell, friend of the show, and Jerry Nadler. And boss of the producers. <laughs> 
girlfriend. Yes. That's Full correct. disclosure. Yes. I have a lot of questions about the story, none of which are, is it true? I think we all agree it's true. Even the denials are non-denials. And, you know, so I guess media, I listened to the tape. It's time to do it. Stone told Greco, let's go find Swalwell. It's time to do it. Then we'll see how brave the rest of them are. It's time to do it. It's either Nadler or Swalwell has to die before the election. They need to get the message. Let's go find Swalwell and get this over with. I'm just not putting up with this shit anymore. So anyway, friendly with Eric. He has three small children. I really appreciate and, and like his wife, Brittany. But more importantly than even that is that we have gotten so desensitized to violence political violence in this country that I think that even hearing these tapes, like nobody is surprised by this tape and they didn't even really deny it. Most people believe that this happened and this is not surprising by any stretch of the imagination. And yet we need to live in a country where this kind of talk doesn't happen, where we say no to political violence for once and for all. You know, it's a moment of fuckery. And because it involves Roger Stone, there's always an element of hilariousness because he dresses like a Bond villain. But this is such serious stuff. And it is a miracle that no one has gotten hurt. And, you know, the truth is there has been a lot of law enforcement that has done a very good job. Right. I mean, we criticize the police. It's certainly a favorite of all of ours. But it really is true that a lot of people, including Governor Gretchen Whitmer, owe their lives to the work that the law enforcement has done behind the scenes. So we're all very lucky. And hopefully we don't have to talk about any of this anymore. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. When you have insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. How do you know you're not overpaying? HealthLock can help. HealthLock is a technology company that securely connects with your insurance and reviews your claims for overbilling, wrong codes, and even fraud. To date, HealthLock has saved its members over $130 million. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union. A savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. 
Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring.